Hey, good morning, everybody. It's always good to see you. And uh, I've got a question for you as we start here. Anybody ever texted the wrong person by accident? Anybody ever, anybody ever texted the person you were talking about in a text because they were on your mind, but you were trying to text it to someone else about them? Ever, anybody ever done that? All right, it's getting really specific now, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I did that earlier this week. Uh, so <laughs> I was like, hey, should we have these people over or should we just not? And then I sent it to the person we were thinking of having over. <laughs> and I was like, ha ha, I like to run everything by my wife. You know, I just, you know it, was, it was one of those moments. The reason I tell you that, I'm, I'm the only one who does stuff like that, I'm sure. <clears throat> The reason I tell you that is because we're uh, many weeks into this one anothering series where right, we've been talking about uh, what it means to be church, to be the church. And, and one of the ways we can learn that is, is uh, through all these one another passages in the New Testament that call us to love one another and pray for one another and forgive one another, encourage one another, confess sin to one another, uh, build each other up. All, on and on it goes. If you're like me, you find that that's great in concept, but you go to work it out. You go to actually pray for one another, love one another, forgive one another, all of these things. And it's like, oh, like there's something in us that just does not want to do that. It's like, oh, I see. Like it gets to the point where it's actually hard work. It's actually commitment with conviction that we are going to live this way. I choose to contribute to community life this way. Because if it doesn't, we're kind of, we always kind of retract to the text that says, like, eh, should we, like, back out? It ah, sounds hard. Like, then we have to not just be reclusive. We have to participate. You know, all of that kind of stuff, right? And so um, if you're anything like me, you're finding that in this series to actually give ourselves to being the kind of um, Christian community that's distinct and countercultural, that is compelling community to those beyond us. Um, you find that it actually costs. It, it, it takes something of yourself to give and do what you wouldn't have a natural propensity to do. I think that doing that, even when we feel that way, is what begins to be really compelling to people. Another piece, just as we begin to talk again in this series, is that as we do this series, it's just a friendly reminder that we're always tracing it back to the gospel. Everything in this series is all about Jesus. So we are to love one another, but how? Like Christ has loved us. We're to pray for one another. One another. Why? Well, because Jesus is our great intercessor, and he shows us how to pray. We keep, sh- we keep pointing it back to Jesus and finding that it's through him and because of him that we do it. And so we continue in that vein this morning with the sermon on serving and submitting to one another. Service and submission are a couple of really unpopular words today, right? So community service is something that you have to do when the judge makes you do it because you did something wrong. You have to do 30 hours of community service. What? No, right? Like, what a horrible thought. I have to do community service, right? Like, that's sort of the way culture views service. It's like, what did I do wrong? Or submission is, is a word that totally goes against our culture's quest for autonomy. This is being played out all the more right now. That there's just to, We want total autonomy on everything, our culture, that there's, just, there's no one over anybody in any facet, in any category. And we're trying to remove all of those. And so um, you, we know, we just need to know going into this, this text and this theme this morning that, that we're really going to be pushing against cultural norms here. 
on a quest to discover how Jesus would have us live. Because yet, even though community, like service and submission are unpopular, we follow Jesus who washed feet and bore a criminal's cross. We follow Jesus who submitted to his Father's will, even though they are one and he is no less glorious than the Father. So we're going to explore what it means and looks like to serve and submit in light of the gospel. That's where we're going. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Luke chapter 22. I'm just going to read you the text quickly that that are the references for the One Another series as you go to Luke 22. Galatians 5 verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, it says. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, the issue, uh, this is really a transition verse. It transitions into um, husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. And the verse, though, that talks about it and transitions to that is Ephesians 5:21, which says that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So a question we have as we get started here this morning is, is, do you want to be a person who has reverence for Christ, deep respect for Christ? We need to learn what it means to submit to one another. If, to be Christian means we need to discover what submission looks like from God's perspective, what service looks like from God's perspective. And we're going to look at those themes of service and submission through one text this morning, and that's, well, primarily, and that's Luke chapter 22 starting in verse 24. So let me read it. Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them. Uh, The reason that a dispute also arose was that Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper and and told them that somebody among them was going to betray him. And so they begin to question one another. They've just been questioning one another, and now it moves into this text here. A dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater one? Who is is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. If you have an outline, you'll see that I've simply placed three words there. Sin, service, and submission. This is all just going to be kind of a fluid sermon here this morning. But you will see when we talk about service, how we miss it. Where, where, where our sin lands on that, you'll see us talk about submission and where our sin lies in that. And both times we're also going to clarify, try and clarify how we are to serve and submit. And so you can kind of just listen for those pieces as we go. So why don't we pray together and we'll dive right in. God, thank you. Thank you that yet again, like in this whole series, we can look to your son Jesus as the model as, as, and as the means for our accomplishing all of this. Lord, we both see in view Jesus' words and his actions. We see how he lived. He, we see what he displayed. And then we also know that he empowered us by the Holy Spirit to achieve what he commands. And so, Lord, as we, as we uh, dig into a, a, a theme here that, 
is wildly unpopular in our day, that it, it has a narrative going that's far different than Scripture's. Lord, I pray that you would help us have a lens that sees the Scriptures and sees your ways most clearly. Help us catch a vision of what you have ordained and what you have commanded. And may our culturally held notions be informed by that and not the other way around. So, Lord, we really need your wisdom. We pray that you would speak. And we pray that you would impress it by your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in verse 24, like I mentioned, a dispute also arose among them because they had just been talking about who they thought was going to betray Jesus. Somehow that argument about, was it you or was it you? And they start questioning each other about who was going to betray. Somehow that morphs into an additional dispute uh, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So Jesus says, someone's going to uh, betray me. They start questioning each other about that, and it turns into a conversation of who's better than who in the room and who should be closest to Jesus, who should have the most power and authority, right? Who should be strongest, who should be regarded by others as they see them as the greatest among them. I don't know how they got there, but to be honest, that is what the sinful heart seems to do. After questioning each other about this, they, uh, about betrayal, they start to argue about who's the greatest. We see issues of pride, entitlement, preeminence, superiority, and jealousy here. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Like these disciples, our sinful inclinations don't lead us towards humility and service. They draw us towards power, pleasure, and status-seeking. See, you and I, we don't bicker about who should be lower on the totem pole. Our, our pride comes out when we, we talk about who should be higher, who should get more, right? I was having a, uh, uh, a conversation with my wife earlier this week uh, that was uh, excitable. <laughs> and uh, I, I would say nobody was wrong in the conversation, but at some point I felt that I needed to give Emily a lot of reasons why I was one of the best dads that I knew. So we were in a conversation where we were talking with each other, and for whatever reason, inside myself, I thought, why not start to give a list of all the things I do really well with the boys so she sees what a great dad I am. I'm not sure what in the conversation made it go that way, but the direction in the conversation got to the point where I was talking about my greatness as a dad. Can I just tell you, when you label yourself something really great, it's hard for other people to look at you and go, wow, yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to put in the work and then stand back and go, oh, wow. I, I felt like I'm going to tell you how great it's that I am. Uh, that's, that's what's going on here with the disciples. God is so gracious. He gives me these illustrations just in the best timing. But that's what we do. We, do, we get into these. And we, right? Who should go to the front of the line? We're never talking about who should go to the back of the line. We're vying for the best spot. We're, we're, we're vying for preeminence. We're vying for superiority. Our sinful inclinations are, if there's a spot that's higher up, I'm going to jump at it. I'm not going to wave somebody else to it. I'm going to go for it on my own. That's what we do. That's what, left to our own devices, that's where our hearts go. And we see the disciples going there. And if you and I look at our hearts enough in those kinds of circumstances, we know we jump there too. Do we not? We do. But Jesus comes along as he hears them having this dispute and says, the kings of the Gentiles, right, non-believers, exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. 
but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. I'll explain that in a bit. And the leader as the one who serves. For who's greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I'm among you as the one who serves. There is one, in the original language, there's one word used in these four verses over and over again for greatest. We see it greatest or greater. We're talking about greatness here. Jesus is playing on this word, and he's, as he does, he's redefining it. So Gentile, like Gentile, these non-believers lead in such a way that they're, they're showing their power. They're showing their authority. They want, people serve them, and that's the way it ought to be by their standards. But Jesus is redefining greatness in these four verses. He's redefining the term for Christians. That in the kingdom of God, the paradigm for greatness is completely different. It's one of those upside-down kingdom pictures. You see how the world functions and how the church functions. And this is one of those instances where leadership just looks totally different. We do not get our cues from the outside world. We get our cues from Jesus. And Jesus acknowledges what we still know to be true, that those in leadership lord it over others. They attain their high position, and part of the allure is that they won't have to do menial work. Things will be done for them. They will be over people, and they'll only do important work. If they achieve a certain status, they're not going to do the kinds of things that people with lower status do. They're going to live off the fruits of all of that, right? That's how it goes, but not so in the church. And, and I love seeing it played out, and we all know it's right and good when we see it played out differently than that. When I was new to Central here a few years ago, I was leading a young adults ministry that met on Wednesday nights. At the time, uh, Alpha was running, and they met on Wednesday nights as well, and would have a meal together. It was sort of an introductory course about the faith and answering some basic questions about the faith. And so there was this Alpha program going, and uh, Ron, who was our lead pastor at the time, was a part of this Alpha group. And I thought, oh, cool, he must lead Alpha, and but as I would spend time there on Wednesday nights prepping for our young adult ministry, I came to see what Ron's role as our lead pastor was with Alpha. You know what it was? In the kitchen with an apron on, over the sink, scrubbing the dishes. He would just slip in, wash all the dishes of everyone who was taking Alpha who had just eaten. Their dirty dishes would come in, he'd scrape them, he'd wash them, he'd hang up his apron, and he'd leave. That was his role at Alpha. Uh, Pastor Eldon was at some conference meetings in Abbotsford, our, our MB conference, uh, last week. Uh, and Rob Teeson, our conference minister who preached here last week, was a part of these all-day meetings. And they had lunch together, and they had some snacks, and just the, the pile of dishes rose. And Eldon just assumed that somebody, you know, there's a decent-sized office staff, that somebody would come and clean up those dishes when they were all going home. But as they were all going home, Eldon noticed as he was leaving that Rob Thiessen had rolled up his sleeves and was standing at the pile of dishes. And the last thing he was going to do before he left was wash the pile of dishes. This um, disagreement is happening uh, at, just as Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper. Uh, Luke's gospel doesn't talk about it, but others do. In the timeline of the Lord's Supper, you know what Jesus did at the beginning of the meal? He washed his disciples' feet. And these were dirty feet. These were sandaled feet that walked through dust, walked through mud, walked through dung. Um, and Jesus knelt down and washed their feet. The culture at the time said that this was a task that was re reserved for non-Jewish slaves. 
Do you know what it means that foot washing was reserved for non-Jewish slaves? It means that even Jewish slaves wouldn't wash feet. It was such a lowly job that certain slaves wouldn't do that job. Only non-Jewish slaves would do the job of washing feet. Chris Thomas, in his research in history, said there's no instance in either Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. This is unbelievable. What he's saying is there is not a single instance that he can find in Jewish or Greco-Roman sources of a superior, somebody above another person washing their feet. Cannot find a source. And then John 13 comes along. These sources come along where Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also are to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I've done to you. Truly, I say to you, a servant's no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus totally breaks cultural norms and washes his disciples' feet. He went low. He went, got on his knees and he did a dirty job that was not expected of him, was so sort of below him in terms of their understanding of how things worked in that culture. But there he got. He removed his outer garment. He knelt down and he washed their feet and dried their feet with it. And, and he has done that. He went low. And then he says, if you understand that a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him, if you understand these kinds of things, then you'll do them. See, no messenger can think he's exempt from tasks joyfully undertaken by the one who sent him. And no servant has the right to judge that a task is beneath them when their master has already done it himself. You hear what I'm saying? Like, Jesus washed feet. So how, how can you say, well, that's, that's a lowly job, not for me? Our Savior, our model, our Master, our Lord washed feet and says, do likewise. And it was, it was the lowliest sort of role that you could imagine. What does that say? What does that mean? Pope Francis, the current Pope in the world today in the Catholic Church, sort of got into the spotlight in 2001 as a bishop at the time, became known to millions in 2001 for his visit to a hospice in which he washed and kissed the feet of AIDS patients. As a bishop, as a minister, he, he wanted to understand what it meant. He wanted to literally follow Jesus' command on this and became a foot washer and continues to do it from time to time where he can do the task. And Jesus says, do as I've done. Wash feet, go low, serve. This is what your leadership ought to look like. Philippians 2, 7, Jesus emptied himself, it says, by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are called to go that low. For Mark 8, 34 says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I wonder, what keeps us from taking a low role? What keeps us from serving? What keeps us from going low? I think at the surface, it is that we often mimic our culture rather than our Lord. We see models for leadership all around us, and we, we mimic what's being modeled around us. And therefore, we find it foreign to go against the grain of the cultural norms. But ultimately, I think the root is pride. 
And one of the indicators of pride is someone's refusal to take a lower role. An indicator of pride is someone's refusal to take a lower role. Are there roles that are beneath you in the church? Are there roles that are beneath you in your home? Jesus would say there are no such things. Before Jesus washed their feet, the disciples couldn't imagine washing each other's feet. But once he did it for them, there was no longer a reason not to do it for each other. In light of what Jesus had done for them, it made sense. And in light of all that Jesus has done for us, it makes perfect sense. In Philippians 2, it begins by saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, is there any encouragement in Christ? Of course there is. Any comfort from love? Is there any comfort in the love of Christ in your life? Any participation in the Spirit? Have you ever seen the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and participation in the ministry of the Spirit? Any affection and sympathy? If that's the case, then he goes on to say, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't be self-seeking. Be humble servant-seeking, serving others. Seek that out, it says. And so we are to follow after Jesus and discover what this means. We are to recognize that Jesus came as one who serves. So what does that look like in the church context, in this context of being a church family and one anothering? What does serving one another look like? Well, there are innumerable ways it looks. Last week I was in Agassiz preaching, and um, before I, I, I preached, I, I shared an encouragement for people to get involved in children's ministry. Um, uh, like here, there's a thriving children's ministry in Agassiz, and these are what we call good problems. 250 kids come every Sunday under the age of 10. And so we're constantly asking, hey, would you come along and would you, would you serve these children like two out of four weeks so that you have some relationship with them so they feel safe and they feel like they know you so you're connecting well with them and discipling them and loving them and serving them. Can, can you do that? And so we're, we're never just asking people to fill a spot. We're always saying, would you come along because it will make such a difference in children's lives. You can point them to Jesus. So I was sharing this because there's a real need in Agassi. And... Uh, and as I was sharing, um, I was just talking about, hey, you don't need to have it all together. You don't need to know everything. In fact, we had some new believers here a while back who got involved in children's ministry right away. And it was really neat because they would sit down with their family and read the Bible stories. And the parents would be teachers in the class. And they were discovering what the Bible stories were even about as they were going. And it was so beautiful because in the children's Bible, it was so clear. And they were learning and they were growing. And then they got to go and teach it. You don't need to be a theologian of, of great kind of knowledge to do this. You just need to be committed to loving and serving these children and teaching them the simple truths of the gospel. And so was sharing this. And a guy leaned over to Allison as I was sharing this, who's new to the church and relatively new to the faith, and leaned over to Allison, our children's coordinator there, and said, I'm in. Two out of four. I'd love to, because there's a need. Like he doesn't. He's got kids. He's not just longing to be in a crowded children's classroom two out of four Sundays, right? Who is? Some of you are, and praise God for that. You are a strange person, right? But we praise God that like there, there's a need, right? I could sit and simply be served or I could serve. And there is a need. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to plug in. And so he did. He answered the call and knew that there was a need. It's beautiful, 
Right? When we moved our, our, our service times, and, and the first service was at 9 o'clock instead of 9.30, that pushes a, a, a worship band that practice, you know, typically at 8, have a sound check. Now it's at 7.30. We're starting to get into, like, the ungodly hours, right? And so, but, like, literally, without skipping a beat, everybody was in. Yeah, I'm in. Why? Because I don't want to be a rock star up here. I want to serve the church. I want to praise Jesus with my church. I want to worship corporately. And so it's 7.30 now? Okay, it's 7.30 now. And off they go to serve you. They make those kinds of sacrifices. And that's a beautiful thing. Front door ministry, all of our ushers, same sort of thing, right? Showing up. I could go on and on and on, and it's a beautiful thing. Our care ministry, we have a number of people who go and visit those in the hospital, those in care, those who can't get here, those who are lonely. We have a care team that go and visit. And I truly believe that when that individual from Central goes and, and, and visits, I believe that Central is visiting, that that person is a rep- representative of us, no? So that that person is empowered to go and serve and just listen, sit there and pray with them and just love them, and where they go, we're going. And, but that individual, nonetheless, is giving themselves to serving in that way that no one else is seeing except that lonely person getting a visit. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's every one of you who, who not only serve in all these different ways, which so many of you do, but also speak evidences of God's grace to the ones that do. So there's something really meaningful about um, being able to say to the children's worker that you see in there often, to be able to say, hey, you know what, when my son goes in there and you're there, he always feels so comfortable because you're, uh, we're just so thankful that you're committed to doing that. And that really means a lot, and, and it's making a big difference in our child's life. just want you to know that. Or you notice somebody who's serving in a particular way and just think, I see the fruit of the Spirit in you. I see you growing in your faith. And I just want you to know, uh, we're so thankful that you do that. Or it's that person who quietly comes alongside and serves with that kind of encouraging word. It's so powerful. We see it in those who help a single mother and her, move, and her kids move. We see it when you quietly know that somebody's in need and quietly go about meeting that need, whether it's monetary or there's a marriage in crisis and that you're just willing to come alongside and shore up and be a stabilizing force and love them well. There are so many ways that we can serve one another. And I want to make a plea to you this morning. Even in light of what the cultural is doing, my plea to us at Central is that we be experts at serving. That we be experts at, at, at jumping at the lowly role. What, what just needs to get done? I'm there. Let's be experts at serving, not feeding a culture where we get served, but feeding a counterculture of being the servants of all. May we be a church filled with followers of Jesus who kneel and wash feet. No task too menial, no person too unworthy. See, Jesus showed us what true greatness looks like and calls us to serve in the same ways. May we be a church filled with that kind of Jesus followers who will kneel and wash, who will serve and do the task, whatever needs to get done for the sake of the body, for the sake of the family. May we serve. Secondly, we see the issue of submission. Look at verse 26. We see it says that let the, great, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. What I want you to notice here is that as Jesus talks about those uh, like himself who, you know, he's the leader. The disciples know that. They're following him, but he's willing to serve. But 
what we need to see is that leadership isn't eliminated. He redefines it. Let the greatest among you become the youngest. The greatest doesn't mean the most awesome or the most important. It means those bearing more responsibility. There are those who bear more responsibility. There still are those who lead. There still are those who have those functions. And so Jesus isn't eliminating that here. He's redefining it. He's redefining what leadership means. And that it just looks different. Leadership remains. It looks different. And the gospel informs how we do it. So the youngest, what does the greatest becoming like the youngest mean? Well, the youngest represents people who possess the least claim for ruling over others. Right? So when you're younger, you have less responsibility. You have less authority. You're you're just a kid. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let those who are the great, who lead among you, be as those... Who, it's as if you just are serve. It's without having possessing claim, but simply serving in that role. And regarding the greatest among you, one commentator said, Jesus' words are addressed to church leaders here. The following words do not deny that there are leaders of the church. There's no denial of that as Jesus reformulates it. What they do is describe how such leaders are to lead. The greatest in the church are not to behave as the greatest in the world. So, what does submission look like? We'll look at it in a few different ways. We'll look at uh, uh, a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where it says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There's a wildly unpopular verse. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This isn't something we want to share with your coworkers at coffee. Hey, just so you guys understand the structures, what's really going on here, you know? But let's start with one of the pieces that it says is really important. Christ is the head of the church. There's no question about that. Jesus is the great shepherd. So as a pastor in this church, I'm sort of an under-shepherd, but he's the head. I'm an under-shepherd, but he's the great shepherd. Christ is the head of the church. There's no denying that. Christ also, though, submitted to the will of the Father. So he leads the church. He's the head of the church. We submit to the headship of Christ in the church. And yet Jesus submitted to the Father. We see, we see submission in the Trinity. In Jesus, we find both the model for leadership and submission. And this is phenomenal. The greatest picture of both is at the cross. So Jesus is the head of the church, and he sacrificially served us on the cross. Jesus, in his leadership, lay his life down for the church. That's how he led. The cross is the greatest picture of that leadership. And yet, at the same time, it's also the greatest picture at the cross of his submission. For there he was in the garden saying, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. And it was the will of the Father that he should crush that the sins of the world should be paid on the cross by his son. And so Jesus willingly submitted to the will of the Father. The greatest picture of both leadership and submission is Christ on the cross. And we see this submission happening in the Trinity. And I think it's important for us to see submission going on in the Trinity. You know why? 
Because then we don't see submission as some secondary role. We don't see submission as some lesser than person. We don't see it that way. You know why? Because the Trinity doesn't view it that way. God being one, being Father, Son, and Spirit. See, there are numerous passages of Scripture where Jesus submits to his Father. And there are not any that depict the Father submitting to the Son or the Holy Spirit, though they're one. So there is a structure going on in the Trinity that we're to learn from. Jesus submitted to his Father sinlessly. Submission was not in light of sin because Jesus did it sinlessly. He submitted to the Father. It has nothing to do with sin or the fall. It has to do with Jesus sinlessly submitting. Jesus submitted to his Father sinlessly. He purely modeled submission there. And yet they're one. And Jesus is no less than God the Father. He's no less glorious. So now, it gets a little complicated. The Bible also says that women are to submit to their husbands even while they're one. So God made male and female in his image as equals. I love this in the creation account because God creates all sorts of things. He starts to create animals, but then he only saves one thing from being made in the image of God. And there he goes. He makes Adam. No sin has happened yet. God, Imago Dei, this made in the image of God, saves it for humanity, creates Adam, creates man. But even before the fall, you know what happens? He looks at something that's not good. There's something before the fall that is not good, and you know what it is? Something's missing. He has not yet created woman. And he creates woman in his own image. Male, female, he created them. Imago Dei, now it was complete, and he goes from not good to very good, and there's only one thing that changed, and that's creating woman. And so male, female, we only fully bear the image of God as male and as female. Both. It's important. Women have this equality, and that it's only rounded and beautiful when it's male and female, and we're to see that picture. It's very important. God made male and female in his image as equals. But God has, just as in the Trinity, different functions for male and female within the God-ordained authority structure. In the midst of their oneness and equality, God is putting certain responsibilities on the man and certain responsibilities on the woman, just as he put certain responsibilities on Christ and certain responsibilities on the Holy Spirit who actually serves and submits to Jesus Christ. And around it goes. Bruce Ware, speaking into this, said, Therefore, it's just as God-like, this is really important. It's just as God likes to submit with joy and gladness to rightful authority as it is to exert wise and beneficial rightful authority. Any delineation on either of those, poor leadership or poor submission, is wrong. It's just as God likes to submit with joy and gladness to rightful authority. In fact, your, your model is Christ. As it is to exert wise and beneficial beneficial, rightful authority leading as Christ led. And this does not simply apply to male-female relationships. This applies to any relationship where authority and submission are being played out. See, there is an equality of essence, but differentiation of roles. And it's evidenced in the Trinity, it's evidenced in marriage, and it's evidenced in leadership in the church. And yet... Inside and outside of the church, marriage and church leadership are under attack today. A traditional sort of biblical view on this is wildly unpopular today. 
sin regarding the tension between submission and leadership began in Genesis 3, and it's, being play, it's been played out ever since. So the fall in Genesis 3 happens. Eve eats first, but God pursues Adam first. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Um, God punishes the serpent. God punishes the man and the woman at the core of their distinctiveness. Do you notice that? In Genesis chapter 3 now, they're starting to be punished at the core of, what, of their distinctiveness. And, and the way that plays out is that women will have pain in childbearing, just at the core of femininity, just punishing at the core. And for men, they will now toil and struggle in work and provision as, right, as they give themselves to that, just as kind of at the core of that kind of masculinity piece, work hard, provide. There is, uh, there is a punishment sort of at the core of those distinctives. One commentator said, from that point on, Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. And Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. Should we do a little... Uh, I'm going to put a little uh, image on the screen. I borrowed it, so uh, I'm just using it here. The Crazy Cycle. This is by Dr. Emerson Egericks, and, uh, and this is what he uses. This is a good like, premarital counseling piece. So many of you have been married for a long time. I'm just taking you back, okay? I'm taking you back to premarital class. Whew, here we go. All right. So this is, let's say the man is at 12 o'clock, the husband in the, in, in, in the marriage is at, at 12 o'clock. Just bear with me, ladies. What happens if he doesn't lovingly lead? What happens if he leads without love? Well, go to 3 o'clock. She's going to react to that kind of unloving leadership, is she not? Is the wife not going to react to unloving leadership in the marriage? She is. And how is she going to react? We're going to turn to Ephesians 5 in a moment and flesh this out a little bit. Well, she's going to act without respect, but she's called to respect in, in chapter 5. But if he's not lovingly leading, she's going to react without respect. Well, what's going to happen if she's, she ain't respecting? Well, he's going to react, and he ain't going to love. He's going to continue, right? And, and this is the crazy cycle. This is the crazy cycle in marriage where we just miss it, we miss it. He misses it, she misses it. He misses it, she misses it. This is where it goes. Now, let's flip it to the energizing cycle, or what we could maybe consider gospel marriage cycle, is that if the husband will lovingly servant lead, we're going to look more at what that looks like in Ephesians 5, if he will lead that way, it will be a beautiful motivation for her to just naturally respond with respectful submission. You're, you're laying your life down for me. I'm going to let you lead. And he's going to react as she lays her life down in respectful submission. And he's going to continue to pour into that loving leadership, sacrificial leadership, laying his life down, right, all of it. And around and around it goes. We live in one of those two cycles in our marriages, in our leading, in our following, right, in our submission or there, our lack thereof, all of it. It goes in one of those two cycles. But I want us to notice here, um, leaders, what I want us to notice here, gentlemen, husbands, it begins and ends with husbands loving leadership. There is far more onus there. God, like he went to Adam in the garden, is going to come to you and say, how did you lovingly serve? How did you lead? I presented you with how you ought to be a husband in, in Ephesians 5. How did you do it? 
God's going to come and ask that question to the husband first. He's going to do it. This all begins and ends. We set the tone. It begins and ends that way. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Well, how did he love? He loved in the most sacrificial, serving type of way. We talked about service and Jesus getting on his knees and washing. Husbands are to lay lives down that way. It doesn't say, hey, guys, if she's really, really sweet all the time, love your wives. It doesn't say, if she's the perfect picture of godliness, lay down your life for her. It is a command to love your wife as Christ loved the church, period. Regardless of what she's doing, you set the tone. You have that responsibility. So if she is not listening, if she is not walking with you in this stuff, doesn't matter. Repent of where you've got it wrong and start the cycle over again. Lay your life down. Serve. Love. Start the cycle over again. Don't pin it on her. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. We see these parallel things going on, and we see how Jesus did it. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. It goes on to say, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So ladies, it doesn't say, if he nails it, respect and submit your husband. It doesn't say, if he's not a boy in a man's body, respect and submit to him. There is just a command, separate it from what's going on with the husband and the command to him. There's a command that God gives you that says, submit to the leadership of your husband with respect a command for you there. First Peter goes further in chapter 3. He says, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, even if some of them don't even follow right, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So even when he's like a disaster... Even when he's passive, there's this call. That's the command for you. Follow. And yet, I will say it again. It begins and ends with the husband's loving leadership. And we look to Jesus for that. We fix our eyes on Jesus, all of us, in our leading and in our submitting. Who's the model and the means? It's Jesus for both. We look to him in our leading. We look to him in our submission. For Jesus accomplished both and is no less glorious for doing so. The same thing is going on in the structure of leadership in the church as is in this passage about marriage. In Mark chapter 10, verse 43, Jesus says, Whoever would be great among you, this is the parallel passage to the one we're looking at, but here's how Mark articulates it. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is a model of our leadership in the church. That is the model that I am supposed to lean into. I'm not supposed to simply read leadership books that are put out there, but top-down leadership, top of the pyramid. This is how you structure everything. We structure it this way, that those in high position in the church lay their lives down, submit, go the lowest, act like the youngest in terms of our ownership and authority. 
we lovingly lay life down. 1 Peter 5, 2 puts it the same way for leaders. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, not for your profit, not for your status, but eagerly, not domineering, not power tripping, not right domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, examples of servant leadership, examples of laying our lives down, of shepherding flock, tending to sheep. Well, in the same way that there's words that really clearly teach how we're to lead in the church, there's clear teaching on how we are to be followers in the church and submit to leadership. Hebrews 13:17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There is no more terrifying verse for me as a pastor than this one. Well, it says to the church, Obey and submit to your leaders. It's also saying because that one who's leading is going to pay is going to give an account for each one of your souls and how he led you. Do you hear the onus? Do you hear that God's going to come and he's going to say, how did you lead at Central Mass? So there's the role of submission and obeying in, 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 in church structure. It exists. It carries on just as we see Jesus honor it and continue to say that there are leaders among us. And yet we see how those leaders are to lead. Again, in 1 Thessalonians 5.12, it says, We ask you, brothers, we ask the church to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We see in these passages that continued submission and respect that are called for in the marriage relationship, they're called for in the church relationship, and where they're displayed beautifully in the Trinity. And they, there are clear commands that teach us to respect and submit to godly leadership. And again, I will say it once again, it begins and ends with leaders setting the cycle, displaying kingdom leadership, sacrificial servant leadership. So as we press this delicate subject a little more, let me conclude here with a word to husbands, word to leaders, a word to families, and a word to church families. Let's start here with with leaders. The model for this how we are to live is as humble servant leaders. Not with pride, not jockeying for position, not to use our authority to wield it and to hold it over people, but humble servant leadership is how we are to lead in the church. If you hold a high office in the church, it just means that you're to do all the more serving. It's to do all the, lo- all the more lower work. And our model for this is Christ, for Jesus says, I am among you as one who serves. Alexander Strauch, in his book, Biblical Eldership, said, when church eldership is viewed as a status or a board position in the church, there will be plenty of volunteers. When it's a position of prominence, when it's a position of power, there will be lots of volunteers for that role in the church. When it is viewed as demanding pastoral work, Few people will will rush to volunteer. One reason there are so few shepherd elders or good church elders is that, generally speaking, men are spiritually lazy. That is a major reason why most churches never establish a biblical eldership. Men are more than willing to let someone else fulfill their spiritual responsibilities, whether it be their wives, the clergy, or church professionals. you look at Genesis 3, you can kind of trace it, and you can see that men have been missing it one of two ways since the fall, either very domineering or with extreme passivity, right? Lording over with power 
or being passive and ineffective. See, the one leads to abuse and the other leads to lazy ineffectiveness, and we are to do neither. We've always been good in the church at the pendulum swing, is we don't want to miss it this way, so we miss it this way. When Jesus is showing a very difficult road down the middle of of balancing the two, that yes, leaders exist, leaders carry on, there are to be leaders among us, in the home, in the church, there are in the Trinity. We're to look at that and see that exists and carries on, and that doesn't mean that you bully with it. That doesn't mean that you abuse it. And so at the risk, though, sometimes we don't want to do that. We've seen that done. So we don't say anything. We don't lead anywhere. We don't do any of it. In fact, as I've been studying this, I've been trying to just work it out, you know, like just again, just sort of in in our marriage. And I've been studying this and just been trying to like lovingly, you know, lead in ways that just help my family flourish, help my wife flourish, help my children flourish and just serve them and love them. And, and then and you, you do, and, and sometimes it's like, oh, I kind of overstepped there a little bit. I missed it a bit. And like, oh, I totally missed it there because I didn't open my mouth. And you, you just keep going back, do you not, when you're trying this? Just me? Okay. Right? Because we have to know this tension exists, and yet what we want to find is what Jesus says about leadership. He calls us to lay life down. And serve. I want to throw up a picture. I was in Israel a number of years ago doing some study there, and, and this is typical of the landscape. You'll find little pockets of grass, a lot of stone, a lot of rock, and, the, and, and shepherds still, they just herd the sheep all over the place, just the rolling landscape. And there's a lot of rock, so the sheep are just looking for the patches of grass they eat there, and then they need to protect them at night. And so I, I always, just before I went to Israel, just, in, just envisioned like a sheep pen. Like they made some sort of a fence and all the sheep were in there and the shepherd was way off at one end of it, right? And, and then a wolf, if a wolf is going to come attack, is probably attacking some sheep at the far end. The shepherd's got to run and go and start beating on the wolf and like protect the sheep. But it's already kind of mauled the thing. Like how does that work? Is that a little too graphic? All right. Um, no, most of you hunt. Come on, who am I kidding? All right. But this is actually the picture of what it means for the shepherd. I'm the, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says in John 10. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. And so what the shepherd does at night is he leads the sheep into a little cave like this. And then where does the shepherd go? Right where that random person is. <laughs> um, laying across the only entry into the cave. For a shepherd to protect the flock is to say, if danger's coming, it has to go through me. There's no other way in. I will lay my life down. So the one who gets to lead in the church, you know what they're doing? You know, the one who gets to lead in the home, you know what they're doing? If danger comes, I take the hit. I die. I go out. And sometimes it's easy maybe for a man in a moment of valor to be like, oh, I'll do it. I'll take a bullet. But you know what's not easy is when the dishes need to be done and your wife's tired and saying, this is for me to do because I'm ultimately the one who's supposed to serve around here. No one serves more than me. Get away from those dishes, right? I will serve the most in this place. That. That's what Jesus is saying. There you go. So I was going to keep going on a rabbit trail, but we'll stop. That's what it looks like, is laying across the danger and saying it must go through me. Husbands and leaders do this. They must. They put themselves in the vulnerable position to protect, love, and serve the family. We see Jesus who washed the dung off of his inferior's feet. He died a criminal's death though his record was spotless. And he is the chief shepherd and the head of the church. And as an under-shepherd in the church and a leader under the headship of Christ in the church, how can I consider foot-washing and sacrificial service and leadership beneath me? I cannot. He is the picture and he is the model. We see it there. 
men, leaders, may we follow Jesus in this. We cannot keep missing it one way or the other. We need to be the kind of leaders and husbands and dads that view our call as servant leadership, spending our lives glorifying God by laying our lives down for Jesus, our family, and our church family. It is a role that is glorious. It is a role that we ought to look at and pour into. It is our greatest calling. And so often we do not look this way. A word to families in our church family. Humble submission is not a bad thing. Humble submission is not an inferior thing. Humble submission is not a second class thing. You know why? Our model is Christ for this. The head of every man is Christ. The head of the wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. We both lead and submit, all of us, in one way or the other. If husbands would lead like that, that picture of laying across the danger and serving more than anyone in the family, who wouldn't want to follow it? And if church leaders would lead like that, who wouldn't want to submit to their leadership? And yet we're in a culture where we've seen it blown so many times. We're in a culture where this is seen as archaic, where there are laundry lists of examples of how this has been abused and missed. But the plea, again, is may we give ourselves to biblical faithfulness on this. Finding the tricky pendulum balance in all of this. May we be a church filled with followers of Jesus who are not too arrogant to submit who are not so culturally informed and so biblically illiterate that we look like society on this front, but cheerfully, eagerly help one another see what it looks like to lovingly lead and respectfully submit, looking to Jesus on both of those fronts. May we be a community of faith that is visibly and tangibly for one another in our interactions as husbands and wives, as male and female, single and married, leaders and sheep, contributors, may we be a bright light of the gospel in a culture that is growing increasingly dark regarding these things. I would be remiss to not mention, as we talk about service and submission, to not start at the very, very beginning, which is here. If you have never, at some point in your life, started a journey with Jesus. You know how that starts? By submitting your life to Christ. If you want to come to know Jesus and you never have before, you need to learn what submission means because the opportunity to start a walk with Jesus is to submit your life to him. If you've never done that before, I'd love for you to do that this morning. We'd love to pray with you after and that we can learn that in submitting our lives to Christ is where we find freedom. In submitting our lives to Christ is where we have our burdens lifted. Where we submit our lives to Christ, we find the greatest servant of all in him. And that is the picture before us. I'd like to call up um, our communion servers, our worship team, and our prayer ministry uh, folks. Um, We're going to have people that would love to pray with you in the front corner, in the back corner, and up in the balcony. We're going to take communion together. Um, So let me just say a couple uh, bits of housekeeping here, uh, just how this is all going to play out. We thought that during this one anothering series, we'd like to give as many opportunities um, to minister to one another, to serve one another as we could. And so you might notice this is not our normal practice around here. We typically pass the tray. 
But uh, th- this morning and last month, we're wanting you to have the opportunity to come and receive. We also want to give some the opportunity to give to you and minister to you in this. This is part of our one anothering series. So that's the rationale for doing that these couple of months. And so um, we've put, uh, given you the opportunity to come up. Also, um, want you to know that everything, all the bread, it's actually crackers this morning, and it's all gluten-free. If you're wondering why it tastes awful, it's because it's gluten-free. So everything is gluten-free this morning, and so you don't need to worry about that. Um, And we also ask that you take that cracker and you dip it. Keep those dirty fingers out of there. Just dip the cracker in the juice, okay? And so that will be an opportunity for us. You don't need to drink from the cup, but you can simply dip that. Um, also, as you're up and receiving, I just want you to know, take your time. We, we, it takes time sometimes to get our hearts right before the Lord, to recognize what he accomplished for us on the cross. We have sin to confess for this to feel like an exercise we can participate in. The band are going to lead us in uh, two songs. And so as they lead those two songs, just know you have some time. You don't need to race up. So you can just pace. There's a couple of songs that we'll have in response. So why don't we pray together? As you're up and you, and you take communion, feel free to head over to someone who would love to pray with you if you'd love prayer in some regard. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your son Jesus, who we look to as the author and perfecter of our faith, who we look to, Lord, as the word in the flesh, the word who became flesh. And so, Lord, we look and we see Jesus both leading and submitting to your will, Father God. And Lord, we, we just, this is so um, difficult in our time, in our moment, to, uh, to follow faith, you faithfully in this. So God, we, we long to do that. I pray that our households would be places where the husbands lay their lives down, not just in a moment of valor and protection, but day by day in the grind of all that needs to get done, laying lives down serving most. Lord, I pray that in any sphere of leadership that any of us might have, may we be the kinds of leaders who are not um, too superior for a lower role, for any task. May we be a church, Lord, that serve one another where there are needs among us. May we be a church that both lead graciously and submit graciously to that leadership. Lord, would you continue to teach us in these things? We need your guidance. I pray that, Lord, as we take Uh, communion together, if this is something you instituted that you said that we should carry on doing, that as your body, that the bread represents your body broken, the cup represents your blood shed, and Lord, on the cross, you paid the penalty for our sins, and we simply praise you, and thank you for that, and we partake in light of that for everyone who believes. We partake now, in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand, and we'll worship